This is the Voices in Japanese Studies podcast. I'm Anna Fittinghoff, and I'm a second-year PhD student at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Matt Lowton, and I'm a third-year PhD student at the University of Edinburgh. In this podcast series, we will be interviewing academics in the field of Japanese studies. We will be talking to them about their career so far and what inspired them to become scholars of Japan in the first place. Through these interviews, we hope to provide young academics a window into the field of Japanese studies. Whether you're a teenager deciding if a degree in Japanese is right for you, an undergraduate student wondering whether it's worth taking your studies to the next level, or a postgraduate daunted by the prospect of forging your own career, we hope that this series will provide you with some ideas and inspiration. Our first guest is the brilliant Dr. Jennifer Coates, Senior Lecturer at the University of Sheffield. Well, thank you very much for agreeing to this interview. Um, we are very delighted to have you as one of our first guests on the podcast. If you can introduce yourself a little bit so the listeners know who we are dealing with. Thank you for having me. I'm Jennifer Coates. I'm a senior lecturer in Japanese studies at the School of East Asian Studies in the University of Sheffield. Um, and that's quite a new position for me. I just started one month ago. So um, I'm hoping that I can draw from the little that I know about my new job <laughs> to answer some of your questions today, but also I think from some of the previous jobs that I've been doing in the field of Japanese studies. Yeah, thank you very much. Looking forward to this chat with you. So if you just ease into the first question, if you can describe your academic journey within Japanese studies a little bit and how you ended up where you are now and how it all began. Well, I thought my academic journey into Japanese studies was a little bit strange, to be honest, because I didn't start in Japanese studies as an undergraduate. Um, I did my undergraduate at the University of Glasgow, which didn't teach Japanese studies at the time that I was there. Uh, and I focused on art history that was mostly European and English literature, which is quite far from Japanese studies. And so when I moved into Japanese studies in my master's, I was quite self-conscious about this. It's only really going further into the study of Japan that I realized there's a massive number of people, especially leading the field of Japanese studies around the world right now, who've had a really similar trajectory. Um, so it's interesting how many people shaping Japanese studies today actually come from outside of Japanese studies, which is not to say that Japanese studies is not a great choice for undergraduate because I think that it is and I think the big advantage that you have if you do Japanese studies from the beginning of your academic career is that obviously you get a head start in the language learning um, but if you do come to it a little bit later on I think you're still in very good company and there are lots of people you know running Japanese studies journals now and kind of uh, you know really at the the very senior stages of their careers who have previous academic histories and something completely different. Um, so for me, I moved into Japanese art history in my master's. Um, and then I went to Japan for two years on a Monbu Kagakusho scholarship. And that was mostly focused on learning Japanese language. But at the time, I was also thinking about doing a PhD. And so I was able to kind of uh, think about what topics I would be interested in. And so I ended up moving into Japanese film studies for my PhD. Um, once I finished that project, my PhD thesis eventually became my first book on uh, representations of women in Japanese cinema. And after finishing that project, I moved again into what's now a kind of Japanese cultural studies with a little bit of anthropology. 
So um, I always joke that every time I finish a project, I move into some kind of new (laughs) (laughs) disciplinary area, at least. Um, But since my master's, the focus has always been on Japan. And because you have such a, an interesting dive into the area, like the area studies of Japan, how would you um, describe Japanese studies for yourself? How would you define it as yeah, a course that has been taught across a lot of institutions at the UK now, but it's a little bit ambiguous about like its methodology, but also its, its skill set that you can get from it? I think that's a really good question to be asking, because I think... Um, I think we are categorized as an area study at the moment, and I think in part because of some of the frameworks in the UK, how we're organizing our research assessments, for example, within the um, research excellence framework, the REF, because we now have this area studies panel, I think universities are being encouraged to identify which of their departments would qualify as area studies Mm -hmm. and to really kind of lean into that. But, you know, realistically, everyone in an area studies department has disciplinary training. And right from our first year with our undergraduates, we're talking about, you know, what kind of disciplines can we use to study Japanese studies? Um, Moving between disciplines, I've been kind of struck by some disciplines, I guess, are more focused on the Japan aspect of what they do than others. So, for example, I feel like Japan is very central to Japanese anthropology, but somehow in art history, even when someone is a specialist in Japanese art history, the Japan aspect of it doesn't seem to feature quite so largely. So I think as you move between disciplines, you feel like the, um, I guess, the, the intensity of the focus on Japan kind of waxes and wanes a little bit. For me, I think I ended up in what I would now call kind of a cultural studies of Japan and a kind of Japanese cultural studies, which are slightly different things, and I'm going to go into that in a second, Uh, mainly because I felt like most of the disciplines that we've historically used to study Japan each have their own kind of advantages and their own disadvantages. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like a cultural studies style approach can allow you to make the most of advantages and also kind of overcome some of the disadvantages that come through certain disciplinary approaches um i would also i guess probably make a distinction between japanese cultural studies and the cultural study of japan and i think this is where things are getting very exciting in japanese studies in the uk right now because i think we're shifting from a cultural study of japan where we use theories and even methods that we've taken from somewhere else and apply them to japan And I think now there's a real focus on looking to Japan and especially to Japanese language sources to kind of think about theories that are generated from Japan that we can use not just for the study of Japan, but also for the study of kind of global phenomena. So this is something we're seeing a lot in film studies at the moment, for example. We're seeing increasing translation of film theory Mm -hmm. from Japanese into English. And so hopefully we're coming to a point now where we can be using Japanese film theory not only for the study of Japanese film, but also for the study of film from all around the world. So I think when it comes to the shape of Japanese studies, we've been very focused and I think become quite good at thinking about Japan. But I think it's a a new or a newer challenge to be thinking sort of also from Japan and with tools that are coming to us through the Japanese language. Mm -hmm. 
And you've mentioned before that one of the advantages of the students in your master's who did Japanese uh, studies before in their undergrad had compared to your situation was the language. Mm. And I think me personally, who comes from uh, Japanese studies from her undergrads and then uh, also in her postgrads and now in her uh, PhD studies, how would you describe the role of Japanese language within the area of, of Japanese studies? Because a lot of people, especially young people who are thinking about joining a Japanese studies department, really see that as the main dominating factor mm -hmm. of their education. Mm -hmm. And then they are training the, mm -hmm. the language. Whereas mm -hmm. the further you progress in your studies, you realize that it is more of a tool. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think speaking from the perspective the perspective of someone who started learning Japanese studies at 22, um, probably a lack of confidence is the biggest problem there. Um, I think also you're slightly less flexible at 22 than <laughs> you are at 18 in terms of your thinking. I remember um, a senior mentor said to me that she also had the same experience and she felt that at 22, when she started learning Japanese, it was like her brain was already too hard. Mm -hmm. And so the, the information wasn't sort of coming in and staying, you know, quite mm -hmm. as easily as she felt that it would have if she'd started when she was younger. I think there's an upside to that, which is that when you have to fight a little bit harder, I think to kind of force your brain to, to learn these things, you then value what you've learned a little bit. And so maybe you're a little bit more committed to using it. So you feel like even if you have a very uh, rudimentary toolbox in the Japanese mm -hmm. language, you really want to use every tool in there in your studies in a way that perhaps, I imagine if the language comes a little bit more naturally to you, you might not really feel that same, I guess, push to make use of everything that, that you've learned. Um, I do think confidence is probably one of the biggest issues but I'm not necessarily sure that um, everybody who begins Japanese studies at 18 has confidence in their language ability mm -hmm. in, in the way that sort of 22 year olds or 32 year olds won't have. I feel like it's just a different kind of confidence and one of the things I think I see amongst my undergraduate students is they might feel quite confident about their language ability but connecting that up to the study of Japan isn't necessarily a seamless process. So encouraging people, for example, to engage with uh, Japanese language <laughs> academic materials or materials from the past, even the fairly recent past, you know, kind of 1950s tabloid newspaper <laughs> Japanese is very, very different, isn't it, than, uh, you know, Terrace House yeah. contemporary <laughs> Japanese. Um, I spent a lot of time with both just to try to keep <laughs> <Yeah>. myself balanced. Um so I think sometimes you do have to, whatever the age of the student and wherever they've started their Japanese language acquisition, you do sometimes have to push them a little bit to say, okay, this is this is problem solving. This is never going to be something that you sit down and read without thinking about it, you know, no matter how high your level of Japanese. If you're going to read this very difficult or very old, you know, piece of work, you're going to be problem solving in the same way as your problem solving, I think, when you read difficult theory in your native language as well, right? Yeah, so when we see Japanese as like the, the language education that is kind of necessary to have the access to the material for further analysis, then 
How uh, would you then distinguish between like Japanese on an undergrad level, between just something that gives you like a language kind of education with a little bit of culture than to something that is um, more focused on like the cultural uh, aspect mm. or the, 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 dis the disciplinary research rather than the language? Like how to keep a good balance of things mm. between the two? Mm. It's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, again, I think there are opportunities at early at every stage, even from the very beginning, I guess, when you're thinking about uh, the basics of self-introduction, I feel like that would be a really great opportunity to talk to students about not only kind of gerontocratic hierarchies or questions of seniority in the workplace, but also, for example, gendered speech, mm -hmm. um, different kind of issues that, that can really sort of introduce students to I think some of the cultural aspects of Japan and, and have them thinking about that from really early on I guess the challenge is that these early stages of language acquisition benefit so much from immersion <laughs> and these slightly more difficult more theoretical conversations are conversations that we can only have I guess in a language that we're confident in mm -hmm. So one of the challenges there, I guess, is if you were going to try and teach those two things simultaneously, if you toggle between, you know, teaching the basics of self-introduction and then going into sort of a, a very um, cultural analysis of gender relations, let's say, in the Japanese workplace as a part of that, you're not really having that immersion experience of, of trying to keep the student, you know, working in Japanese for the whole hour of a class so I think that's one of the challenges is how do you schedule your kind of content and culture mm -hmm. classes um, in a way that can complement the Japanese language teaching, but also allows a student to really spend, you know, a full hour in Japanese and really test their, I guess, endurance as well as their kind of conceptual understanding. And do you see that now that you are in, in the UK and very much uh, embedded in, in like university system of the UK as well of, of Japanese studies, do you see that there is certain trends or like a, a transition to a more like this flexible approach that you've just been describing? Or is it still like very much static that you have the division between, yeah, this is the language that has to be acquired in a sense, has to be taught in a certain way, and this is the more like analytical part of like Japanese studies as a cultural studies in a sense? I think we're constantly challenged to be more flexible. Um, I think some of the factors kind of involved there are we have increasing awareness, I think, now of kind of student situation. And I think it's it's a really positive thing now that students appear to be much more comfortable speaking out about their own personal challenges and difficulties in the learning environment. Uh, so one of the things that I think we've had to think about when it comes to Japanese language learning, which historically in some places at least has been quite a brutal process, <laughs> we now have to think about our students' mental health more mm -hmm. carefully than I think we, you know, were maybe encouraged to do in the past. Um, we have to think about what the question of kind of endurance in language immersion means for creating a good learning environment for students of all abilities and with, with all kind of uh, backgrounds and personal learning situations. So I think that's one area where we've had to be a bit more creative and flexible when we think about, for example... Um, the case of students with social anxiety who are not comfortable speaking out 
in a classroom full of people, how do you teach a language in that situation when so much of language teaching has been about, you know, kind of performance, I guess, mm-hmm. to an extent, and also the the repetition and, and the testing of, you know, pronunciation mm-hmm. and things like this. So that's a challenge, I think, that's pushing us towards thinking about more flexible ways of integrating languages and cultures. One of the other developments, I think, that's reasonably recent, and this is happening, I think, in a number of different universities in the UK, is this pathway of the the studies pathway, kind of alongside of the the language pathway. So students now enrolling, for example, in Japanese degrees that would be language-focused, and at the same time with classmates who are in Japanese studies degrees that are not language-focused. Or in the case of the School of East Asian Studies, we also have an East Asian Studies degree, which covers uh, China, Japan, and Korea as well. Um, So I think the fact that those students will share some of their classrooms is also kind of pushing us towards thinking about a way of teaching Japanese language and culture that allows students to kind of move, I guess, in a more adaptive way between the areas that are drawing their interest and between the areas that also fit with what they want out of their degree. I guess one of the balancing acts there probably is to think about um, not only language learning, but I think learning of any kind usually involves a degree of kind of discomfort. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think you see this in, you know, kind of like very unfamiliar languages like learning Japanese language or learning Chinese language, but it's also a core kind of aspect of disciplines like anthropology, right? The practice of, of putting yourself in a situation where things seem strange so that you can better analyze it. And I think really what we want is a perfect balance between being very flexible on the one hand so that students can freely follow their interests and move through the topics and content that is appealing to them, while at the same time uh, not kind of losing this element of like slight challenge or, or productive discomfort. So I think that's probably going to be one of the biggest challenges facing Japanese language, Japanese studies, and everything sort of that falls in between in the study of Japan in the next probably five years. So how would you describe basically your your evolution as a Japanese studies person throughout yeah, your first contact with the air, uh, with the discipline to to now really? Mm. I mean, I think these kind of evolutions are always ongoing, aren't they? Um, I think for me, probably one of the biggest points where I I really have felt that my understanding of what Japanese studies is has shifted has been when I've moved between, um, you know, places to live and study and work. So, for example, because I took my first immersive Japanese language lessons in Japan, I think I began those with an idea of, oh, you know, this is what Japanese studies is. And then realized, of course, when I came back to the UK to start my PhD, that my peers who had had their Japanese language education somewhere else had had a very different kind of uh, classroom environment and so had a very different sense of what the, you know, what the project of Japanese studies was. So, for example, you probably know in Japan, most Japanese universities that offer intensive Japanese language learning will do it very much in a sort of... uh, almost kind of school environment. So, for example, when you begin with sort of kindergarten level Japanese, 
your class runs like a kindergarten class, <laughs> even if the people in it are 35, you know, so you kind of are, even the, the way that your kind of body is conditioned in those classes is very, um, it, it's very much appropriate to the level of your learning rather than, you know, your kind of life experience or your, um, I guess, your age as a student when you come into that classroom. And I kind of, I suppose I thought that was normal because that felt to me like, you know, something culturally specific, I guess, to Japan. And so it didn't occur to me until I came back to the UK that my UK-based classmates had not been essentially attending, like, Japanese kindergarten classes as 18 year olds (laughs) in the same way as I basically had been when I was 22 um so I think that was a big moment where I realized that uh my understanding of Japanese studies was a little bit out of step with people who had begun their studies in the UK and that the same would be true of Germany of Mm -hmm. France of Italy and probably also the US um I guess probably the second time I felt like there was a really big sort of substantial seismic shift in how I was thinking about Japan as a field of study was when I went back to work in Japan. After I finished my PhD, I went to Kyoto University to work in the Hakobi Center for Advanced Research for four years as an assistant professor. And I was part of a number of interdisciplinary research groups there. And my research group was mostly focused on East Asia. And they were in the habit of saying that they were a research group of Higashi Asia Tonihon. And I thought that was really funny because, they, you know, they were saying East Asia and Japan. <laughs> and I would say, oh, in the UK, you know, Japan is part of East Asia. And my co-researchers would kind of think about that and say, oh, I mean, that's interesting. But they would just continue to say, you know, Higashi Asia Tonihon. They mm-hmm. would, it was like, oh, you know, if you said... Uh, Oh, in Edinburgh, you know, people eat their chips with gravings. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. But, you know, they're going to keep eating their chips with tomato sauce. Yeah. So um, that was really when I felt like, oh, Japanese studies look so different from everywhere in the world that you would do it. And that's kind of a, a strange thing to know at the same time as you feel that you are becoming more familiar with the area yourself, you know. Um, I think in terms of feeling like I had a familiarity with Japan as, I guess, an object of study, Probably it was the project of doing ethnography that made me feel that I had a slightly more navigatable kind of relation to Japan as a field. And funnily enough, I don't think that that was about consolidating my knowledge necessarily. I think that that feeling probably came more from the repeated experience of finding myself in a social situation or a conversation where I didn't know what was happening And I had to ask people, and of course I had to ask people in Japanese, and they would explain to me what was happening, and they would explain in Japanese. And I think that's really when I felt like, okay, I can now navigate my way through this. I don't think I'm ever going to know everything, you know, about Japan. I don't think anybody is. But I think when you have that sort of turning point where you realize that you can ask people and you can understand an explanation, I think that's when you start to feel that you have a bit more of a grip on things. Yeah, I guess everybody goes through that uh, like familiarization with, with, with the discipline or, or the the studies that they the research that they are doing and uh, very much learning by doing. I would say, and especially like a Japanese context, uh, a lot of social like weird social situations that you have to find the best way to navigate through. Now that you are a senior lecturer at Sheffield, 
is that if, if you look back on your academic like journey to this point now, was that always something that you thought you're going to end up with doing? Or Oh, no, definitely not. <laughs> was there like, at some point that, oh, I don't know, for me personally, for example, when I did my undergrad, I could never see myself doing a PhD. I was mm -hmm. like, okay, maybe a master's, but that's it. That's definitely where mm -hmm. I'm going to end um, my academic endeavors. But now, now here I am doing a PhD. So mm -hmm. you never know. Did you have like a, a set plan or kind of like a feeling, oh, this is something that I'm really good at? And I, Or when did that feeling set mm -hmm. in that this is the, the right thing for me to do career-wise? I mean, to be honest, university for me was a bit of an unknowable kind of entity because I grew up in Scotland where obviously, you know, university is free. <laughs> um, so that changes, first of all, who thinks about going to university and why you might think about going to university. But the system had also changed a lot since uh, my parents my parents went to training colleges, basically. Um, so they had experience of further study But this idea of sort of the university as it was in, I guess, 2003, which is when I started my undergraduate, that wasn't something that many people in my family had experience of. And I didn't go to a high school that sent a lot of students to university. So in terms of people that you could ask, what should I do with my life? Um, I didn't really feel like university was the answer uh, that I was hearing from, from most people. Um, but I suppose at that age, you know, when university's free, you think, well, why would I not go? Um, so I went and I just chose the subjects that I was relatively good at in school. So that was how I ended up in art history and English literature. And it was actually only towards the end of my four years of undergraduate in Scotland that I became interested in Japan a little bit by fluke. Um, I was studying Charles Rennie Mackintosh and I was interested in the influence of Japanese arts and culture on his architectural designs and also his furniture designs. Um, and I had a really great mentor who was actually writing her own PhD on Japanese art history. But to be honest, I think the, the defining factor that channeled me towards Japanese studies was the enormous number of scholarships and funding that there is available for the study of Japan. So from my master's study all the way through to the end of my studies, I was always funded And I don't think it was an accident that, I, I don't think that was unrelated to the fact that I was studying Japan. I think that an interest in Japan led me to a relatively small and very well-defined field that made it easier to find funding for the study that I wanted to do. And then I think when you actually go to study in Japan, the Japanese government is so generous, mm. right? So I think probably... Initially, anyway, that was kind of the attraction that it didn't seem like an, it didn't seem like not a sensible thing to do if, um, you know, you're being, if you're being paid to do it, I guess. Um, and so I kind of felt like even if this doesn't go any further, and I think I didn't have an idea of how it could go further at each stage, but I kept thinking, well, if this all comes to nothing, then, you know, even if at the end of a master's or at the end of a PhD, I still don't have a career plan. You know, I was supported by scholarships mm -hmm. for this number of years and I learned a new language and that's not nothing, yeah. right? Um, so that was kind of what kept me going through it. But also I think that um, in some ways my trajectory looks like it makes sense now. 
at the time that I was making the decisions that I was making, <laughs> some of them didn't feel like decisions for a start. And others, I think, seemed like strange decisions to some of the people around me. So, for example, um, I remember not being very confident about the decision to spend the two years in Japan on the Mombusho Scholarship. Mm-hmm. And that was partly because... Coming from Scotland, when you finish your undergraduate, in some universities you can go straight into PhD. Mm-hmm. So I already had the idea that I wanted to keep studying. But if I'd done things on a Scottish timeline, I could have been finished in seven years in total, mm. you know, which seemed like a more sensible plan than adding more years. Um, what convinced me was that my potential PhD supervisor said, well, I will not supervise you if you haven't spent any time in Japan and you don't know some of the language. So you essentially have to go or you can't do the PhD with me. Um, And that helped me make my decision. But I remember at the time being quite wary of the idea of signing up to two years living in a country that I'd never been to and, you know, trying to learn a language that I didn't know if I could learn. And again, I think it was probably the funding situation that persuaded me in the end that that wouldn't be a total loss. Now I think it's crazy that I was so <laughs> resistant to, you know, here's two years of free money and free Japanese classes. Um, but I still see when I try to persuade some of my own students that, you know, they have a good opportunity to go somewhere or, you know, to extend their studies a little bit. There's that same feeling of, is this a very smart plan? Mm. Um, I think the second decision that I made that, again, didn't feel like a decision, but might have seemed a little bit odd, was the decision to take my first job in Japan. And again, that one was kind of a fluke. Basically, the reason I ended up at Kyoto University is because the Japanese hiring cycle takes a full year. So Japanese jobs that begin in 2020, for example, will have already been advertising in April 2019. Mm. And so you actually have a full year-long hiring process that you can kind of almost, I don't want to say sleepwalk through, but, you know, the process moves along incrementally. And then before you know it, you've been offered a job. (laughs) Um, And for me, I was still finishing my PhD. So this was kind of... uh, this process, although it had been moving very slowly, was already far advanced of any other you know, job application process that I might do from when my PhD was completed. Um, so I guess I, I went to Kyoto without kind of thinking about it too much. And that ended up being such an eye-opening experience. I think the opportunity to work in a Japanese university was really what put all the learning I'd been doing up till then into perspective and gave me a better sense of what I'm doing in Japanese studies and what Japanese studies is doing within the wider academic kind of landscape. Did you ever have any doubts that you are sitting there doing your research and thinking, why why am I doing this? Mostly, to be honest, on the language side. I feel like a very bad language learner. I felt like, especially in the early stages of the language, other people were picking things up so much faster than I was. Um, for me, ethnography was kind of the curative there in that I learned that if I just sit with a situation long enough, I can make myself understood and other people become much more understandable to me. And I think really my language capacity kind of accelerated massively from when I started kind of interviewing everyday people and, and working with participant observation as a method. In terms of doubts about my actual research objects, I do sometimes think, am I the only person who finds this thing interesting? (laughs) (laughs) But this is where I think teaching and research are such great kind of 
complements to one another, right? Because if you're not sure if a research idea that you have is going to be of interest to anyone else, you know, you can test it on your undergraduate students. And, you know, if they've had sort of hours and hours of classes already that day and you can say something at 3 p.m. that makes them sit up and think, oh, I never thought about that before. You know, I think then you know that you're really onto something and it's not just you. I think sometimes it's a question of how do you frame your idea, right? And I think this is where the idea of, you know, in Japanese studies, we're just learning about Japan so that we have better knowledge of Japan is kind of a not very useful way of looking at things, or at least it's not self-sustaining in the way that I think we would want it to be. I think that when we, or definitely for me, when I test ideas out on students, it really helps to put whatever the Japan-specific example that I'm working with is into a much more global context and to think about, you know, how can you sell this as an example to look at the nuances of an idea, to look at the the similarities and differences between Japan and other places that might draw out new facets of a problem or an issue that is active everywhere. So I think something like Me Too is a perfect example of this, right? Me Too in Japan allows you to explore gender relations across the world and definitely the the changes in gender relations that digital communication is bringing um, in a way that in the end I think tells you something very global um, but you know kind of exploring this issue through Japan can tell us something different than exploring this issue through kind of anglophone popular mm-hmm. culture or through US or through UK popular culture. So would you say that you have kind of an advantage coming from a more diverse background in your training than somebody who would have stuck to a more classical approach to Japanese studies? I think in the end, I have been perceived by uh, other people to have an advantage. I think I needed to learn how to translate that advantage clearly and how to make the most of it. And also to see points of advantage as points of advantage rather than deficiencies. So, for example, I used to be so focused on the fact that I started Japanese studies late that I didn't think about everything that I learned in my four years of studying Mm -hmm. art history that could be useful in the field of Japanese studies. And I think it was only when I was turning my PhD into my first book, I was borrowing a, a kind of mode of approach from art history called iconographic approach, which in art history is a very standard way of, of reading a visual image. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know if I really thought that I was bringing that from art history into Japanese studies when I was using it for the book. But when my first manuscript reviews came back, you know, when your readers are informing the press, mm-hmm. whether they think they should or should not publish your book, <laughs> um, this was something that my reviewers were actually really focused on. They said, oh, we want to hear more about this. This feels fresh. It feels, you know, new, at least to the study of, Japanese film and so I was thinking well that was something that I would not have considered an advantage I would have considered it a weak point because it was time I spent learning about something that was not Japan specific Mm. and yet actually incorporating that into my study of Japanese cinema in the end was perceived by my reviewers as an advantage I think basically what I would like to do with my students now, whether they are enrolled in Japanese studies programs, whether they are enrolled in East Asian studies programs, or whether 
you know, they're taking my class as their like one unrestricted mm-hmm. module and they're actually specialising in economics or law or something like this. Basically, what I would like to help them do is learn earlier than I did how to translate those kind of advantages that they might not see as advantages themselves so that when they are trying to sell either a piece of work or, you know, even themselves, like on the job market or in their CVs, they really know how to, I guess, pull out those those things that they know or the combinations of things that they know that other people don't have because other people have not taken quite such a varied approach and they really know how to... I guess flag those up for people who are reading their work or looking at their profiles and say like this really gives me something unique that I can offer. You, you've mentioned it how you saw that more of a like a personal disadvantage that you haven't had that like substantive uh, training just uh, Japan specific but have you actually ever directly felt a disadvantage in the way you were moving in your career that um, for example certain jobs you you couldn't really be considered as one of the candidates because the the common perception of Japanese studies is oh you have to be mm. trained very mm-hmm. speci- uh, Japan specifically mm-hmm. and so did you ever feel any kind of these disadvantages in your career or was that something that is has now changed in the academic mm. and environment in the UK mm-hmm. I think the academic environment in the UK is changing very fast but I think it's very difficult isn't it even from from the perspective of someone I guess who has held three different jobs Mm. since 2014 um I think that it's it's very hard to speculate on what is happening kind of in the job Mm. market partly because it changes a lot but I think also when it comes to I guess the academic job market it's very hard to see inside of minds of a selection committee right <laughs> um i think that very local concerns sometimes influence the decisions that academic selection committees make and even before applications make it to a selection committee they might go through a more or less automated mm-hmm. process of selection or rejection um in that circumstance for example i have definitely heard that some people feel that if your degree title isn't in a certain field, you are more likely to be automatically rejected Mm. for jobs that you might apply for in that field. So, for example, in my case, my PhD is technically in media and film. Nowhere in my PhD certificate does Mm. it say Japan. So if I'm selecting from a drop-down menu, you know, what my specialism Mm. is, it's not going to say Japan in that drop-down menu. And that, I guess, in a very sort of strict hiring environment might lead to my application not being considered. Um, But I think one of the things that I probably learned from sitting on hiring committees, as well as, I guess, being an interviewee, is that this question of fit, which I think we find very unhelpful when we're Mm. applying for jobs, and sometimes people will be giving us advice and they'll say, oh, you know, Um, if the job is a good fit, you will get it. If the department's a good fit, you will get it. And if it's not, you Mm -hmm. won't. It doesn't feel very helpful at the time because we can't control for it, right? (laughs) You know, how do you make yourself a better fit for something, especially if it comes down to personality or, or kind of personal history as well as training? 
unfortunately, I do think that that's still one of the biggest deciding factors. Um, I do think that we are still in the habit of fostering, mentoring and hiring people who, uh, you know, kind of remind selection committees of themselves. I think the good news is that the field is becoming a lot more diverse, which means who that is now looks different than it did even just five years ago. Um, I think as we have more women in senior positions in Japanese studies, not just in the UK, but around the world, that will change more. I think we definitely need to move away from this very, um, you know, kind of this, this very white face of British Japanese studies. That's really a problem. So I hope that, you know, as each generation becomes more diverse, the question of who is hiring and who is not being hired becomes more diverse. Um, in terms of training and background, I would say that that might be more of a concern at the early career stages than at the later career mm-hmm. stages. So I think that often certain departments in certain areas of the world prefer to hire people who have been trained the way that they also train their PhD students. Uh, and that often doesn't mean directly hiring their own PhD students, but rather hiring PhD students who've been trained in schools that are very similar and are maybe even neighbouring schools. I think that one of the things that we can do in the early stages of our career, um, I think when we're early career scholars, the broader networks that we can build with other early career scholars means that we kind of learn a little bit more what that training looks like and uh you know, maybe we can we can learn from people who've been trained in different ways and incorporate that into our own practice as well. Because I think then when we move into the next career stage, this question of sort of training and academic background becomes a little bit less important. I think it becomes more important, your kind of provable outputs, what you've managed to do. So I think in as much as particularly the academic job market can drive people crazy <laughs> if we try to sort of... Uh, figure out exactly what's going on inside of it. Um, I think one way that we can kind of maybe approach the issue without kind of driving ourselves mad is to think about, you know, how can we become more well-rounded as Japanese scholars in the general? And what kind of immediate provable outputs do we want to focus on to demonstrate what we can do? Um, Yeah, you've mentioned the role of like some mentors within your research, but also in your career and would you say as a as a PhD student that that's a time for you that is not that far away yet mm-hmm. <laughs> that there was somebody specifically who helped you guide like be guided through the process of becoming then an, an early career researcher who then goes into the academic job market as well or did you feel that you very much were um, left alone in terms of you were doing your PhD and your research but Everything that follows on from that, once the, the thesis is submitted, is a little bit up in the air and you don't really know mm-hmm. how to navigate through the, the, the instances in order to get then to a job mm. at, at a university. I think in the British system, um, and I say this, I guess, basically, I did uh, my, my PhD in three and a half years at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, Uh, But I actually spent the middle year at the Australian National University Mm -hmm. as a visiting scholar. And then I spent six months um, in the U.S. uh, on a a fellowship at the 
Library of Congress as well. So I feel like I sort of had the opportunity to observe a little bit of the Australian and the US systems while being very firmly in the British system. In the British system, I think one of the challenges that we have is that most of our East Asian studies or Japan-focused departments are a little bit too small for us to have a programme of study for the PhD in the same way as our US counterparts have a a very rigorous programme. The advantage is that we finish faster, I guess. Um, But I think that can lead to feeling like you don't have quite as much direction as, you know, maybe some PhD students in other parts of the world would feel that they have. I think that your relationship with your supervisor in the UK system is possibly more defining because you don't have that input from other areas. So, for example, at SOAS, we had some uh, PhD cohort kind of meetings and activities And we also did some basic training courses that were also offered to master's students. But we didn't have the kind of clearly planned out PhD progression program that some of my colleagues in the US had, for example. Um, I was very lucky because I had a really great supervisor. (laughs) And my supervisor uh, was very proficient at writing and publishing books. So because our goals were kind of similar, I knew that I wanted to try and make my PhD thesis into a book if I possibly could. We kind of had a shared set of goals where she tutored me in how to essentially write a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and the PhD obviously really did need to be adapted and it, it needed to be revised many mm-hmm. times before it could actually be published as a book. But we had the same vision for what the PhD was going to be and we could communicate very easily about that. So I think I was really lucky there. I think for people who have a different idea of what their PhD should look like than their supervisor in the UK, that can become a much more challenging circumstance because you don't often have, you know, the full committee Mm -hmm. that people would have in other countries or, you know, the kind of program with, with input from multiple different teachers. I think the other thing that I found really helpful during my PhD was to make good relationships with my sort of immediate senpai and kohai. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so basically to have good friendships with people who were at the same stage of the PhD. Um, I was actually even for a while part of a, a job hunting cohort oh. <laughs> um, where I had a group of friends. We knew that we were all realistically going up for the same jobs. So we decided just to share our resources mm. and talk freely together about how we were approaching the job hunting process so I think lateral bonds are just as important as vertical but you know mentorship I think is a funny thing because I think sometimes you can feel very strongly that you are being mentored by someone um, and then maybe that relationship doesn't have the outputs or the longevity that you would maybe think that a mentorship relationship would have and then conversely I've found sometimes that looking back on my relationship with other scholars something that I didn't think of as a mentorship relationship at the time has actually been an enormously productive relationship Mm -hmm. and a relationship where I really learned a lot so recently I had the opportunity to invite senior scholars to join a summer school that I was running Mm -hmm. and I was really focused on when I was thinking about who to invite, I was thinking about who made a big impact on my career and who would I want to have met when I was a PhD student, you know. Um, and the people that I invited were probably not the same 
people that I would have put on a list of, you know, who have been my mentors. Mm. And that was quite eye-opening for me because I thought, actually, you know, we're, we often learn so much from people that we're not aware that we're, you know, kind of learning from in that moment. But then things that they told you will come back to you or you'll see their impact on a piece of work that you're publishing. And you'll think, wow, that, you know, that was a mentorship mm. relationship, even though it didn't look like one. Um, I suppose that's a very wandering way of saying that I think that everybody has something to teach you. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you probably also have a lot more to teach other people than we're necessarily aware of ourselves. So I think a kind of open and engaged approach to the other people in your field, whether they're junior or whether they're senior, for me has been something that has really been very sustaining of my work as well as I think helping me sustain a positive feeling about the field. And is there anything that you would have... Like done differently or at any stages that you would said, oh, it would have been nice if somebody would uh, warn me about this or taught me about a, like a certain skill set that I would have been very useful mm. uh, further along? Mm -hmm. I think for the job application process, uh, one thing that is really helpful to know is that job application processes in different countries are very different <laughs> and I think we all tend towards the kind of U.S. style of you know kind of uh, writing materials that are very beautifully written and that mm. introduce us as people and I think one of the things that I would have liked to know when I was applying for jobs was that the people who are reading my materials are often very pressed for time mm. And that definitely in the UK and also in Australia, if there is selection criteria for a job, you should be responding to that point by point, almost even in like bullet points, you know, beautifully crafted sentences, I think, are not quite as important in, in that market as uh, I think I definitely felt like I thought that they were when I was writing my first round of job applications. But also, I think in a more general sense, all the way from undergraduate right through to you know, entering the job market, if that's the tra tra trajectory that people <laughs> want to take, it's hard to say. Um, I think basically just the idea that, you know, it is okay to make mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes in public. Nobody is going, well, I mean, some people might judge you for them, but nobody <laughs> is really going to judge you for them. And also, you know, people have very short memories. And I think sometimes you know, we worry so much about getting something wrong that we don't actually participate. And this goes all the way from, you know, speaking practice in a, a first-year Japanese mm -hmm. language class all the way through to attending conferences as an early career scholar. We don't want to raise our voices because we don't want everybody to look at us when something mm -hmm. goes wrong. Um, but I think, you know, you learn so much from those moments. Nobody else ever remembers them. <laughs> and it's better than, you know, kind of being too afraid to engage and never making your mark on the field or the classroom environment in the first place, mm. right? I think people are often also kinder than you expect that they're <laughs> going to be in that's, those situations. That's very nice to hear. <laughs> very um, motivating. <laughs> And uh, just like a concluding question, is there anything that, any advice or any warning you would wanted to give to your first year self in your, when you started your undergrad or... Is there anything you can think of that would have been helpful? I think maybe just relax. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, especially over the last couple of weeks, I've been looking at the the new students on campus and thinking, oh, you know, everybody <laughs> seems so dense, and it, it's a big, it's you know, a big stressful 
you know, kind of experience. Mm. And I think especially, you know, if you're entering into Japanese studies and you're going to stay in the field of Japanese studies for, for master's, you're going to do that experience over and over, aren't you? You're going to do it when you go to Japan for the yeah. first time as well. You know, you're going to do it when you enter the next level of a course. You're going to do it in, in your first job. You know, every time you're going to have this imposter syndrome or this feeling of like, oh, I don't know how to handle this. And you always get there in the end, right? When you look back at all the times you started something new, you think each time I thought that was going to be so terrible and it always worked out fine. And I think if... Yeah, I, I try to remind our first years of that anyway, that, you know, just don't judge yourself too harsh, harshly, you know, throw yourself into things and, and take things at your own pace and everything will work out. It's just a question of showing up regularly, isn't it? Do you have any kind of like balancing system that you established uh, throughout your uh, career? Something that is um, outside of academics, the academia that actually brings you kind of the the balance that it's, you need is very hard isn't it i think especially um as you continue on in academia it becomes harder to balance family life with academia especially if you end up in a situation where you're far from your family and you on top of all the time that you have to give to your studies and your research you also have to put an enormous amount of time into just keeping in touch with people who might be far away I was in that situation for a very long time and so I feel like I didn't actually develop any hobbies. <laughs> and so now actually in my new job, finally my my life has slowed down a little bit and I'm thinking, you know, oh, I should get some hobbies. <laughs> um, but I think going outside, I think being in nature, you know, for me, I, I run in the park and I just think that's, you know, an opportunity to clear your mind mm. and, and do something that is not sort of sitting in front of a book. Um But I also have a major Netflix addiction, which <laughs> I tell myself is work. <laughs> I think it's basically a hobby now. <laughs> But uh, I think anything that makes you feel good, you know, and I think, again, that's an area where you shouldn't judge yourself too harshly. If you're doing something, you think, oh, you know, I should have been using my spare time to get fit or to cook healthy mm. meals or, you know, to constantly improve myself. I think, you know, we can't be constantly improving ourselves yeah. all the time. Okay. <laughs> We've also got to have our terrace house moments. <laughs> Just, you know, zoning out. Thank you very much for a very interesting and lovely chat. I hope it was something uh, enjoyable for you too and yeah, like reflecting on, on everything. And thank you very much. Thank and you. all the best with uh, your talk that you're going to give here in Edinburgh uh, in a wee while. And yeah. Thank, thank you very you. much. Good luck with the rest of this great podcast project. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you again to Dr. Coates for taking the time to share your journey with us. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Voices in Japanese Studies podcast. We hope you'll join us again for our next interview in the series. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>